As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. There is only one queen. Long live Queen Elizabeth. God save the queen. All that's happened on my watch is the place has fallen apart. The Crowncast. A new watch-along podcast series from News Talk. The Crown. The Crown. The Crown must win. Kira Kelly and you're very welcome to episode 8. We're on our home stretch now of The Crowncast where we look at all things to do with series 4 of The Crown. Episode 8 is called 48 to 1 and my guest today is the one, the only Mr Pat Kenny. Pat, um, you're very welcome to The Crowncast. Are you a crown aficionado or, or did you just get into it recently? No, I've been there from the very beginning. I mean, fascinated by the idea of it in the first place that people we know are still living, still functioning, still relevant, and to actually do kind of biopics on television about people who are capable of watching it themselves um, is quite a novel idea and quite a dangerous idea, I would have thought. Well, there actually is a lot of comment about that currently, particularly in the British press. Uh, Simon Jenkins, for example, in The Guardian has said that dramatising living history, as you say, with the people who who took part in it all around to see it and, and, and making it appear to some people who maybe aren't, I suppose, up to speed with the actual events of the time, make them believe that it's true or that it's real or accurate, that he has a significant problem with it. What's your view on that? Well, I don't believe it's anything approaching a definitive account, let's put it that way. I think it has a tangential relationship with the truth and with history. (laughs) You know, if you think of, say, a circle and inside the circle there's another circle and you rattle everything and occasionally the inner circle will touch the outer circle. Well, I think that's the way uh, this relates to truth. You know, it touches the truth. It touches accurate history from time to time uh, throughout the narrative, but uh, probably not that often. And does it matter? As in, does it matter? It is a dramatisation. We're looking at their relationships, how we might imagine that the royals talked to each other, how we might imagine Thatcher spoke to the Queen or Charles spoke to Diana. Uh, does it matter if it's accurate? Is it just a version of the, the truth or, or, or close enough that it's it, fine? It, it or doesn't no? matter to me, uh, Kira, because <laughs> I'm able to kind of suspend my disbelief and say, this is pure drama. But because I know the characters, um, you know, I'm capable of separating uh, the real life from makey uppy stuff. And yeah. uh, the fact that Charles is still knocking around and in rude good health and Josh O'Connor doesn't look remotely really like Charles. He's got a few of the affectations that uh, Prince Charles has. Um, it's easy to say, well, it's definitely not Prince Charles. We saw him the other day on telly. Yes. Diana, on the other hand, is a bit of a, a, a problematic one because 
Emma Corrin looks very like the young Diana. She does. And she has captured, it would appear, the spirit of Diana very well. So I'm inclined, in spite of my better judgment, I'm inclined to side with her and say yes. You know, that is Diana. And how dare he talk to her like that? <laughs> well, the, the crown itself appears to side with her too. I don't mean the crown as in Queen Elizabeth, but the series. It's quite sympathetic to Diana in a way. Charles does come across a little bit whiny, a little bit needy, self-indulgent. That is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it's a, a fair assessment as to how he comes across. And they paint a picture of him where he has this wonderful estate in Highgrove where he starts to grow organic vegetables and all the rest of it while she's a young girl who preferred to bop to the pop music yeah. of her day rather than go around sniffing the roses uh, and to, to some extent that has got to be true because Charles has made it a lifelong passion uh, to look after the environment and so on and so forth and I can't imagine a you know, 22, 23, 24 year old young woman being too bothered about that at that point in her life. I mean, you yeah. tend to grow into those uh, ideas as as you get older. So I've no doubt that they were not well matched in, in that sense. However, you know, if they had had more of a meeting of minds and if there wasn't that third party in the marriage, yes. perhaps they could have grown together. But unfortunately, um, there oh, was always there was... that problem. Yes, there was always that, that there was three of us in this marriage. This episode is called 48 to 1 and it looks at, I, I suppose very often the Crown in any of the episodes has a political backdrop to what was going on in the society of the day and this is all about apartheid in South Africa and the political upheaval and about the Commonwealth and the Commonwealth wanting sanctions imposed on South Africa. And it starts off with Claire Foy, who was obviously the Queen in the first two series, making a speech on her 21st birthday to the Commonwealth, in effect, talking about it as, as, as a, you know, a family of countries, as a community. And, and I suppose we're supposed to take from that 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 is her view that had coloured the, the, the events that, that would have happened later on in, yeah. in the late 80s. I mean, that, that sequence, I thought, was very telling. It's, it was in Cape Town in South Africa that she made the speech, allegedly, and I'm sure she did. That bit is probably easy enough to stand up. But she's broadcasting live on radio. Uh, they are recording it using an acetate recording where you see the little needle scratching into the acetate and, and making a recording Um I don't think tape was around at the time. So they had to do that. And then they cut to people listening, people of all colours, all nationalities, listening avidly to the transmission of the radio programme. And it gave you an extent of the empire. You know, whether it was Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Africa, uh, Ceylon, all over the world, there were people uh, listening. There were Sikhs and Pakistani, everybody listening to this Princess Elizabeth as she broadcast to the Commonwealth. And I think that was kind of a way of saying, you know, it, this was still the empire. And, you know, knowing what we know now, how reduced it is uh, these days. But it was to demonstrate the love of the Queen for the Commonwealth yes. in which she had invested at such a young age. And I, I yeah, I, I took that, that it was setting us up to understand what came later, that the Queen had this 
huge sense of responsibility and affection for all of these countries. And she did view them as as friends and as almost, it's very paternalistic, but I would imagine as almost like her children all around the globe. And that was sort of what what drove it. And then it came forward to what was the the current day, which was the demand for sanctions. And it was all of that. And, And you and I will both remember all the free Nelson Mandela, all the, you know, I won't play Sun City, all the pop stars coming out and enormous global attention being focused at that time on apartheid and on South Africa. And the call for sanctions was pervasive. And Margaret Thatcher stood in the way of it all. What did you make of how they handled it? Well, there were two things that I wondered about. I mean, we don't know what the Queen thinks on political matters uh, to this day. We can sometimes interpolate, but we may be interpolating it wrong. And what they lay out is that there were 49 Commonwealth nations, including the United Kingdom, and that 48 of them were in favour of imposing sanctions on South Africa, but the UK was not. Mrs Thatcher was against it. Now, her son Mark was doing business in South Africa. Her husband Dennis had uh, very deep uh, connections with uh, economic interests in South Africa. You could say that was the reason she took uh, the view, or you can say she didn't believe in sanctions because they might hurt industry, trade and all the rest of it. But then the proposal is that the Queen sided with the 48 others Mm. in the Commonwealth and she was, you know, wanting sanctions and she had a stand-up row, or rather sitting-down row, with Margaret Thatcher where she indicated her view. And the kind of language that Mrs T uses uh, against the Queen, I don't know whether that was the way they were, but I can't think of any other Prime Minister approaching the Queen in that way. Yeah, uh, it was hard to know whether it was believable or not. And I, I, none of us know whether it happened. None of us will ever know whether it happened. But do you have any with your with your vast current affairs experience? Do you have any insider knowledge? Do you remember the the, the story being broken in the Times that the Queen was unhappy? A, a, a break with all protocol to actually. I suppose, get any kind of insight into an opinion that the Queen might hold. But do you remember that story, that the idea that there was a constitutional crisis brewing over this issue in the UK? I remember it kind of vaguely because I, yeah. I can't say I was too concerned about uh, the goings on of the royals in those days. But, but I mean, that happens from time to time. There are leaks and sometimes uh, these days more than most, there's fake news. There's making up stories. Yeah. You know, how do I sell a few papers? This one seemed to have some sort of provenance you know, there seemed to be a leak from somewhere within the palace. And the narrative here is that the press secretary to the Queen, Michael Shea, was the guy who leaked. In the drama, he, in fact, emphatically says, do not do this. But the Queen's private secretary is of the view that a leak should be done and goes ahead and leaks it. And then, lo and behold, when a fall guy has to be found, it's not the private secretary it's Michael Shea who gets yeah. the boot. And then I, I, at the end of the, the narrative, by the way, it says Michael Shea went on to have a successful career writing political thrillers. Um, but in fact, he'd been writing political thrillers since 1971. <laughs> so you that's know, It seemed like he was fired. But as a result of being fired, he became a successful, yes. a successful writer. He or, wrote or under the name a, Michael Sinclair from 1971 as a pseudonym. Or as a, so as it, a result of what mm. happened to him, that he, he, he decided, I will write about intrigue, having been on the receiving end of it. It, it reminded me a little bit of, at the end of the, the episode that was referred to, I think the name of it was The Hereditary Principle, where, where they, they produced at the end photos of, 
of the cousins of the queen that had had grown up in a in a uh, an institution mm. for for people with disabilities, and it was sort of like QED. Look, we can. Pr- it's there are areas where the the crown kind of attempts to almost prove its narrative to be true, and it, there's an awful lot of leaps and inferences that 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 don't necessarily add up to to to, to you know two and two equaling four. Yeah, I mean, that's the difficulty with the whole series, um, particularly when you have dialogue that's created. I mean, there's nobody probably who could tell you what went on behind closed doors. Now, stress in episode eight, we don't see anything of Diana. She's not uh, featured. We do see a bit of Andrew, Prince Andrew, who comes across as a right prat, having established earlier in the series that he was the Queen's favourite. Um, um, but Diana the, is absent. So all these conversations that may or may not have taken place or you can imagine, well, that's what they would have said if they did have this conversation. That's where we get into huge difficulty. I mean, when get, I'm watching with with Kathy and uh, Nicole or Christina, whatever, and they're saying, oh, isn't that so-and-so? How could he do that? How could he say that? Or whatever. And for the moment, at least, going through it, watching it, we're all believing it. Yeah, and it ain't true. I, it ain't so. I I do wonder, and you're you're quite right. Um, Prince Andrew comes across like a monster, Egypt, uh, and and he's he's disgusted that the the attention is is diverted away from him. We might actually take a listen to that scene. The wedding of the Duke of York should be a landmark event at home and abroad. Instead, thanks to the Queen's inexplicable lapse of judgment, the newspapers are full not of Sarah and me. The, Mummy's rift with the Prime Minister. Ah, yes. Sunday Times. You have to admit she has made a god-awful mess of it. What was she thinking? She did what she spent her life telling me I cannot do. She opened her mouth and expressed an opinion. And is being slaughtered for it. Bloody thoughtless of her, if you ask me. Oh, come on, you can hardly blame the newspapers wanting to write about something other than the wedding of a fringe member of the family who'll never be king. Ouch. Prince Andrew is obviously disgusted that the attention is being diverted away from him and, and his wedding to Sarah Ferguson and is focusing on the spat between Thatcher and, and the Queen and he wants it all about him and himself and Charles are clearly grating on each other and there's lots of inner sibling rivalry and jealousies. Do you think what we're doing here is is that we're looking at characters like Prince Andrew which we have a, a view of today coloured by all the information that we have over the last 30 odd years and we're 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 kind of scrolling backwards and putting that on him. Obviously, we don't know if he was an Egypt in this manner or not. But because he's widely disliked, I think it's probably fair to say now because of all the Epstein stuff and all of that. That's what's what's being put out as that character. Is is it a, a modern take on the past that that is very unfair? Do you think? I'm not sure it's terribly unfair. I mean, we we get the clues uh, along the way. I mean, the Queen, we're told here that she is an unfeeling, distant sort of person Mm. for whom duty is everything. And then when you look at the marriages of her children, well, certainly the three uh, elder children of the four, Prince Edward, I think, is still happy enough in his marriage, as far as we can know. But the other three all uh, split up. So, you know, know, there's something wrong in a family where three out of the four uh, marry and then cannot make it work. So you you get some clues as to how things would be. In terms of the Queen and Diana, well, after she died and she made that famous speech, you got a sense that she realised 
that perhaps there was a different way of being queen and maybe she learned from it. So how true it is, does it give an accurate impression of the royal family? Probably yes, as an impression, but it's not fact. Th- what do you think of the acting in general? I know, I know you mentioned the, the sort of the affectations of the Charles uh, character yeah. and, and you mentioned you, you thought that Emma Corrin was amazing as, as Diana and obviously a lot of people are talking about Gillian Anderson as Thatcher or indeed... Um, uh, well, I mean, in terms of me Prince Charles, I think Josh O'Connor, and I saw him on with Graham Norton talking about this, with Emma Corrin as well, who played Diana, and they had a party game that they used to play on set where he tried to do his best impression of Diana and she tried to do her best impression of Charles, which must have been a, a bit of fun. Um, but I think they both carry off their roles really well because you get this stiff upper lip from Charles and, you know, later in the series, because I've now completed it, you do get, uh, you know, an emotional outburst from Charles, which is at odds with everything we've seen. So that just shows how well prepared he was because we're built up with one expectation and then we see something else. I love uh, Tobias Menzies as Prince Philip. Oh, so do I. I think he he plays it really well. He's much more um, likeable than Prince Philip appears to be in real life, I think. Well, Prince Philip is heading for 100 years of age and he, you know, he's entitled to be a bit curmudgeonly uh, (laughs) at this point. Uh, Erin Doherty as Anne, I've liked ever since uh, she started to play that role. I thought she was uh, absolutely terrific. And all the other people, um, the the guy who plays uh, Chartres, the private secretary, um, Nicholas Fenlon, who plays Michael Shea, they all kind of, they're, they're the stock English actors, but they do it so, so well. And as for Gillian Anderson, I saw a lot of criticism about her playing Mrs. Thatcher, but to me, she is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I met Mrs. Thatcher well I've been in the room with her several times but I met her on one occasion where I got to ask a question in a press conference did you and um, she was exactly uh, you know kind of imperious slightly overbearing but quite tolerant of this young fellow from Ireland uh, throwing a question at her Um, but she was you know Gillian has her absolutely the way she walked a lot of people are asking though is is it acting or are they doing almost like an impression or an impersonation because because particularly the Gillian Anderson version of Thatcher, it is quite a, an affected character. The Thatcher in the, in the Crown is very affected. My recollection of Thatcher is that that is what she was like, but other people think it's kind of over the top. Well, there, there is a lot of mimicry, I suppose you might say, um, but I think it works so well. The only criticism I would have is that they've aged uh, Gillian Anderson too much because at that time... Uh, Thatcher would not have been as drawn and haggard as she is made to seem in these episodes. Um, She would have been much more doughty, I suppose. And if you look at the pictures of her as, you know, a tear came to her eye in the car. She leaves number 10 for the last time in real life. I'm not talking about in the series. Um, She is not a haggard figure. She's a sad figure, but not a haggard figure as uh, she heads off into the political uh, sunset. So I would give full marks to Gillian Anderson. I mean, when I saw it first, I could not believe it was Gillian Anderson. Yes, we're we're used to slightly sexier versions of Gillian Anderson. Yeah, and and there would be many, uh, you know, great British actresses who would crave that part. So, you know, a daring move to give it to Gillian Anderson, and she, she did it so well. 
Do you have a favourite character? Do any of them stand out for you? As as, as I mean, you mentioned Anne, and, and I actually think that she is a likable character. She seems quite feisty and strong and has a, has a bit of gumption about her in a way that perhaps Charles doesn't. But but do any of them stand out for you as your favourite? Well, I do like uh, Tobias Menzies as Prince Philip, but Helena Bonham Carter, mm. I think, is wonderful in capturing... Um, she doesn't look like Margaret, um, but she captures what was Margaret, this lost soul, uh, whether or not had she been allowed to marry group uh, Captain Townsend, she would have had an entirely different life or whether or not that was uh, a dalliance that may not have made the cut in the end of the day. I don't know. But being the younger sister of the monarch, yeah. uh, being circumscribed in so many ways and having a life you know, full of booze and fags and love affairs and so on. Um, I think Helena Bonham Carter captures that lost sense and that confusion uh, extremely well. Do you think, and I, I, it's previous episodes, but certainly looking at, at the episode on, on, on Diana largely and then the following one on, uh, on Margaret, the, there was kind of two in a row, I think there were six and seven. There were quite similar women in a way there was parallels between Margaret and Diana very much constrained kind of vulnerable they wore their vulnerability they were both vivacious in her day the eyes of the world were on Margaret in the way they were on Diana to a lesser extent the press wasn't as intrusive but these two unhappy in love beautiful women really who were slightly brittle there is a, a generational parallel between the two of them I think it's well made, that comparison, and uh, to some extent, uh, probably true. I mean, we never saw uh, the side of Diana, the bulimic side. We, we were told about it later and all of that, and that was her private unhappiness. Uh, Margaret was probably more of um, a, a public figure in terms of her social life. I think she was out and about a lot more than uh, Diana. I mean, Diana and Fergie, uh, and this is fact, this is... I don't know whether uh, it'll be referenced in the next series, but they used to, you know, dress up and go out in disguise uh, in order to have some sort of a bit of crack together. Um, whereas Margaret's um, they were public, reported as, private as life was quite public, you know, and, yes. and was allowed to be. I mean, they didn't have bodyguards coming out the, the, the windows all the time for fear of you know, assassinations and all the rest of it. When Margaret was young, I mean, the IRA weren't up to uh, their... Uh, activities when Margaret was out and about and enjoying life to the full. But yes, there is that parallel there. Um, again, I, I don't want to mix truth with fiction too much. Um, so how much of what we're seeing is actual history? Don't know. The, it just captures the mood, I suppose. It, we're, we're looking we're looking back over, over the whole of, of series four almost because we're on episode eight and we are also looking back over the other three series as well if you like do you have a favourite series do you think that series four I mean I was most interested in series four because I really wanted to see Gillian Anderson who I'm a big fan of but also I remember the royals of this era I don't remember the young queen I just don't remember the heyday of, of, of Margaret all of that was before my time but do, I'm not sure that it has quite lived up to the hype that I hoped it would but but I mean it's very very good but I, I, I wonder did I want something else from it but do you have a favourite series out of the four you've seen? I have to tell you it all blurs into one series <laughs> I do remember the change in characters I, I mean when Olivia Colman took over as uh, Queen Elizabeth II I didn't like her at all Yeah I, I agree and I didn't even like the change 
Well, in series three, I felt that Olivia Colman was being portrayed as too old for the Queen as she would have been in series three. But now in series four, um, I think she's grown into the role. I know there are still criticisms and so on. And it's a bit of a caricature in so many ways. Um, but at the same time, she's now more in the right time zone in her character, uh, I think, than she was in season three. I loved Claire Foy as yeah. the young princess because I think it captured for the viewer and none of us would be old enough to remember what she was like as a young princess. But the idea that she was young, she was beautiful, um, she was alluring, she was magical, uh, Claire Foy could capture that in a way that maybe um, an actress who maybe looked more like the Queen actually did in those days mightn't have captured it because yeah. th there are fashions in beauty. And Diana was very much a, a beauty of her time. And I think probably Elizabeth was a beauty of her time when she was in her late teens and early 20s. Yeah, and Claire Foy had that kind of haughtiness, but she was also kind of looked semi-startled a lot of the time too. You kind of see she was a little bit caught on the hop almost by becoming queen. It, 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 it was very, very well done. I suppose lastly, one of the things that stands out for me in this series, because I, it is in, in my living memory, is the music, Pat, the 80s music. It's very evocative listening to Duran Duran or listening to the specials or The Cure or even the stuff around Nelson Mandela in episode eight. Are you enjoying that side of things, that kind of walk down memory lane? Yeah, I, I think music can capture an era very effectively and when you see Diana bopping around to her, her favourite yeah. stuff it's it just captures it and places it in exactly the, the, the right place um, when I knew I was going to be talking to you about this particular episode and I, I was wondering about the truth of Margaret Thatcher and uh, sanctions and all the rest and all of it was true she did object to sanctions but there was an article I read by a guy called Richard Dowden who wrote uh, a book about Africa called, uh, I think it was called Altered States, um, or Africa, Altered States, Ordinary Miracles, about the transformation of Africa. And in it, he writes that Margaret Thatcher inadvertently actually helped the release of uh, Mandela. She actually wrote to P.W. Botha and said, there's no point in keeping this guy in jail. Uh, and then uh, de Klerk came on to uh, succeed Botha. And he was the one who actually let Mandela free. And eventually, he was mouthing off a lot of socialist stuff at the time, which she was horrified by and said, how, how in God's name did I ever ask for that man to be released? But of course, he was a prisoner, uh, another prisoner, not of the regime, but now of the ANC. And he had to mouth off those things until, as president of South Africa, he became his own man. And he went to visit Thatcher and they had a meeting. But Richard Dowden met Thatcher later and said... Um, what did you think of de Klerk? What did you think of Botha? And she gave her view. And then, what did you think of Mandela? And she said, I never met him. And Dowden thought at the time, but that's crazy. Of course you did. But then we know now that she was suffering from Alzheimer's. So ah. it's a poignant postscript to that whole episode. Yes. Look, on, I, I love the fact that you actually know quite a lot about the backstories to these things. Most of my guests don't have your level of class, Pat. But thank you for speaking to me today on the Crowncast. That is the one, the only, Pat Kenny. We will have. Can, can I just say I cannot can. wait for series five? <laughs> yeah, me too. Thank you very much, uh, and we will talk to you very soon on the Crowncast with episode nine. The Crowncast, a new watch-along podcast series from News Talk. The
crown. The crown. The crown must win.